We're going to continue in the book of Ephesians today. Uh, we will be in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 7. Would you, would you stand as we read God's word together? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> Again, we're going to continue today in the book of Ephesians. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very wonderful, encouraging book. Uh, the particular place that we're at today in Scripture, uh, as, uh, as our Old Testament reading has shown us today, can, can be hard to swallow at times as, as we see uh, words such as iniquity and transgressions, and we all fall into that. So, um, But one of the things I want to do on the intro is just sort of recap uh, some of the things that Ben has been preaching as he's sort of uh, led the way in a, with Ephesians and you know, Paul's already been hard at work in chapter 1 of Ephesians, and he spent great amounts of time, uh, his energy, his words, as Ben has pointed out several times, his run-on sentences. And what he's doing is he's laboring, right? He is laboring and sweating, trying to set before us in detail the blessings, the inheritance, the power that belong to the Ephesians because they're in Christ. He's wanting them to understand what Christ has done for them. One of the things he does is he does is he introduces the Ephesians to these sort of grand theological concepts, terms such as predestination and adoption and election and redemption, forgiveness and grace and divine love. And what he's hoping is that these things would lead and guide them into praise and adoration of God. I know a lot of times, as Ben said, uh, as he's been preaching that, you know, we, we can't get our minds around some of these terms. We can't get our minds around some of these deep theological things. And that really is not the purpose for which Paul is setting those things before us, but he's setting those before us so that it will lead us into worship of God. It will lead us into praise of the Lord and also hope, help us understand the hope that we have and how secure it is because of what Christ has done for us. And one of the things Paul knows is he knows that all of our hearts are slippery, right? He knows that all of our minds are slippery and that these things tend to slip off our hearts and minds, that these truths, that these blessings, we have to continually pour those things over our hearts and over our lives because our minds and our hearts are slippery. We have trouble hanging on to these great truths. We have trouble understanding who Christ is and who he has made us. And so Paul wants to continually pour these great truths over our hearts again and again and again. And that's the reason we meet together every Sunday. That's the reason we read the scriptures in our personal devotion is because we need the gospel to be poured out over our hearts again and again and again. Because the truth is, 
Our hearts are like these massive stones in this great white water rapid river, and the water just sort of smooths over and doesn't leave a mark. And sometimes that's the way the gospel is in our hearts, and so we need the gospel continually poured into our hands. We need Christ to continually show us who he has made us because we understand that it's like fine sand slipping through our hands. So therefore, Paul understands that, and so he, he enters into prayer, which starts in verses 15. He not only shares these great blessings that Christ has accomplished, but because he understands that our hearts and our hands are slippery, then he begins to pray that God would make these things a reality, that our hearts would be open, that the eyes of our hearts would be open so that we might understand the blessings and the power and the inheritance that we have in Christ. He wants, us to, he wants them to see who they are. He wants the Ephesians to understand their identity in Christ. And so when we come to chapter 2, right, we, we could use some more of this, right? We could use some more of these great blessings. We could use some more of this power that God says is now is ours. We want to hear more about this inheritance that we have in Christ, but that's not really what we get in chapter 2 in those first three verses. And so at first glance, right, it almost looks like Paul is digressing. It almost looks like you're like, well, Paul, why, why are we going back to this sin issue? <laughs> why do we have to go back? To slavery, Why do we have to go back to this deep iniquity that you say is a part of humanity? And so we might ask, well, Paul, why leave this great fountain, right, these great truths of blessings and power and riches in order to go back to Egypt, right? Because that's what it sort of seems like. It sort of seems like in this passage he started off with all these blessings, all these great truths and riches, and just like the Israelites came out of Egypt... They're like, we want to forget about Egypt. We want to forget about our sin. We want to forget about that way of life. We want nothing to do with that. But as we see here in Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 12, listen to what it says. It says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so the reason God revisits, the reason Paul takes us back to our sin is because we are much like the Israelites, right? We're, we're very much like them. The Lord saw them in their slavery. He, he brings them out of Egypt. And God says, when I bring you into the promised land, right, which is a picture of heaven, which is a picture of where the Lord is taking us, and you receive all these good things at my hand, when you receive all these good things because of my grace and my goodness and my compassion, and you enjoy these things, in your enjoyment, I don't want you to forget you didn't earn it. I don't want you to forget that this came by God's mercy and not by your works. I want you to understand that you did not pick yourself up by your bootstraps and enter the kingdom of heaven, but you are in the promised land because of my grace and because of my goodness and because of my compassion. And so that's where we are today. And so there's something very, very important that Paul wants us to understand about the timing that Christ united us to himself. So there's something really, really important 
that Paul wants us to understand, when did Jesus make me his? When did Jesus unite himself to myself? When did that happen? And there's something about that and something about understanding that that's going to help magnify these blessings that we have in Christ. So that the Ephesians are able to see the largeness and the beauty and the hope that we have because we're united to Christ. And let me explain that a little bit to you. So what Paul is doing is there's something about when we were united to Christ, that we were united to Christ when we were in sin, when we were dead, that's going to help us, it's going to help deepen these blessings that we have in Christ. And so as we think about magnification, right, uh, you can have two ways to magnify things, right? It's with a telescope. And what do telescopes do? They take things that are really far out there that, look, that are really, really big and really, really beautiful, right? And they help us to see them for what they are. They help us to see the beauty and the majesty of what they are. But a microscope, right, it takes things that are very, very small, right? Things that are very sort of you can't see with the naked eye, and it helps us to see them. And so in this case, Paul is using a telescope, and he wants us to understand the blessings that we have in Christ and the deepness of those blessings. And so he shows us our sin. He shows us the place that God rescued us from when he united himself to us. So Paul is not trying to beat us up. He's not trying to condemn us, but he wants to make the magnification of God's promises and the inheritance and the riches. He wants you to see them for what they really are, these large and beautiful things that he wants us to understand. And so as we start here in verse 1 and 2, it says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And so in verse 1 there, it says, And you, it's talking about the Ephesians particularly, Paul's like you, you Ephesians, you Gentiles, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.12 says that they were without hope, and without God in the world. So if you're without hope, and you're without God, then right, you're, you're in a pretty bad place. If there's no hope, and you don't know God, you're in a really bad place. And so it goes on to say that you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And so you may ask, well, why, why does the Paul, Paul say you're dead in your trespasses, and you're dead in sins? Isn't that the same thing? But in reality, the Greek word there for trespasses it means rebellion, and it means to go beyond the boundary of what God set. So you see that in Adam and Eve in the garden, right? God set these boundaries for them. God set up these boundaries that they couldn't go outside of, don't eat of the tree of the fruit, and they, and they went outside of what God had set in place. So we see in that their rebellion. We see that they're in rebellion against God. But also, the second word there, sins, it's, it's more geared to your a failure, so not only are we rebels, but we're also failures. Not only do we go beyond what God requires or asks of us sometimes, but we're also unable to hit the mark. That God puts the mark in front of us, puts the standard, and so not only are we rebels, but we are failures. And so Paul wants the Ephesians to understand that. He wants them to understand that they're dead in their rebellion, and they are dead in their failures. And if that's not enough to sort of put the point very clearly to the Ephesians, he goes on and says, and this is the way you used to walk around. This is the way, this is the, the nature in which you navigated the world. This is the way that you walked. You walked in rebellion and you walked in failure. 
And I don't know about you guys, but I see both of those things in my life at times. At times I go beyond what the Lord says and I rebel against him in the way maybe that I use my money and the way that I go about life. But I also see the failure side of my life too, right? When I look at his commandments and I think, man, I am failing every day. So I am a rebel and a failure at times. And so Paul is wanting them to understand this. And he goes on and says, not only were you dead, not only were you dead in your rebellion and you were a failure, but you walked around, you navigated life in this way, following the course of this world, aligning yourself with the world's attitudes and the world's inclinations and the world's tendencies and its atmosphere and its frame of mind. It's pretty bad news. That seems to be pretty discouraging news. In fact, Romans 8, 7 says that we were hostile to God and we were even unable to submit to his ways. Romans 1.18 says that we would actually go so far as to suppress the truth, to push the truth down. So as we move into verse 2b, it says, not only was that true, but we also followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So the prince of the power of the air 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 tells us that basically that's Satan. That, they, that the Ephesians were not only dead in their sins and trespasses, but they were basically followers of Satan and sons of disobedience. Now the thing that's very interesting here, and the reason Paul sets up this, sets up this whole passage like this, is because, right, you have to remember, he's talking about Ephesians right now. He's talking about the Gentiles. And so the Jews would have given a hearty amen to this, right? The Jews would be like, of course, those pagan Gentiles. Of course, they're rebels. Of course, they're failures. They're Gentiles. They know nothing of God's ways. They don't know the scriptures. There's, they, they don't know the prophets. They would have been given amens and high fives to Paul as he read this first part of Ephesians. And so that's one of the things that I want us to see is that Paul is sort of setting up the Jews. He's sort of setting them up in the way he goes about presenting this particular passage to us because now as we enter into verse 3 Paul says this among whom we right Paul is a Jew among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and mind and were by nature children of wrath now the Jews would have took a hard gulp there and been like what Paul well, what did you say and he wants, Paul is wanting the Jews to understand that there's really no difference between Jew and Gentile. And that's the reason he says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. We, Galatians 5, 19 through 21 says, we all lived in sexual immorality. We all lived in impurity and sensuality. We all lived in adultery and sorcery and enmity and strife and jealousy and fits of anger and rage. And you know what, Jews, you were no different than the Gentiles. You know what, my Jewish friends, I was no different than the Gentiles. And he goes on to say that they were by nature children of wrath. And just when you think Paul is finished drawing these circles, right? He starts with the Gentiles, he starts with the Ephesians, and he includes them in this very bleak description. And then he draws another circle that in includes the Jews 
And then lastly, at the end of verse 3, he says, and like the rest of mankind, right? Like the rest of mankind, we were by nature children of wrath. And so the plight of all mankind is this description, this description that Paul has given us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, is a description of all of humanity. In fact, Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. If you want a more elaborate and detailed description of this, you can read Romans 1, 2, and 3. Paul goes into more detail and more description about the plight of the human race. Now, some may object, right? Some people may come in and say, what? All, all are dead in their sins and trespasses. All are rebels against God. All are failures against God. This doesn't seem to square with the facts of daily experience, does it? We see athletes with their fit bodies running around, exercising, competing, laughing, joking. We see scholars debating and reasoning and arguing. We see the celebrities dazzling in personality, right? But what I want you to understand is these verses, it doesn't say that there's not activity. It doesn't deny that there's activity. It doesn't deny that there is not walking and following and navigating and accomplishing and trespassing. But activity doesn't mean life. Just because you're busy in life doesn't mean you have life. Activity doesn't equate itself to having life. In fact, John 1.4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That to be alive is to be in Christ. To be born again is to be in Christ. And you can be busy in life, full of activity, full of laughter, and not know Christ. In fact, death is a people who are created by God to be in union with God, now busy in activity without God. Blind to the glory of Christ, blind to the majesty and the beauty of Christ, unable to see Jesus, unable to hear his Spirit's calling. So Paul says, this is the human race. This is what the scripture teaches us about humanity. And so when we look back on these blessings that Paul has so vividly described that are ours, when we think about Paul's prayer that our hearts, the eyes of our hearts will be able to see and know these things, I want you to realize, church, that these blessings found us when we were dead. That these blessings were assigned to us when we were rebelling against God. That these great promises were, were given to us in our failure. Romans eleven thirty two and 33. For God has assigned over to disobedience all that, we may have, that he may have mercy on all. And then it says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unscrutable 
his ways. And so Paul has given us this very bleak description of humanity, not to discourage us, not to condemn us, but to deepen, to deepen these riches that Christ has accomplished for us, to broaden this inheritance that Christ has accomplished for us so that we understand the depth and that we understand the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God that he found us dead in our sins and trespasses and he brought life. So we all at one time were like Lazarus, rotting in the grave, and Christ raised us from the dead. We were all like Jairus' daughter, dead, no hope of life, and Christ raised us from the dead. Verse 4 and 5 say this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. But God, the God of life, the God of joy, the God of mercy and kindness, because of his great love, not because of our beauty, not because we had great worth in and of ourselves, but because of his great love, even when we were dead, even when we were unable to welcome grace, when we were unable to see God's mercy, no ability to respond to God's voice. You see, grace not only had to intrude on the undeserving, right? It also had to conquer the rebel within us overcoming the hardness of our heart. You see, those that are undeserving of the trophy, right? Those who are undeserving of the prize is because they're failures, right? If you're in competition and you're in a baseball game, right, and you're undeserving of the trophy, it's because you failed, you didn't win. So you see, grace not only had to intrude on our failures, but it also had to conquer our rebellion. It's very interesting it is Paul is trying to help us understand what God has done for us in his great love and mercy right at the end of verse 4 and 5. And he says, just in case you miss this, just in case you don't understand what I'm saying, by grace you have been saved. Right? By grace you have been saved. In other words, you did nothing to contribute you did nothing to gain this position in which you now stand. This inheritance, this power, these riches, this seat that you have at Christ's table came to you by the mercy and the grace and the kindness of God. As he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ is what verse 6 says. Now we are sharers with him in the heavenlies, assigned a seat at Christ's table that one day we will take possession of, that one day we will pull our feet up under his table and eat with him. As I was thinking about this passage and 
Why does Christ want us to remember where we came from? Why, why is it important that we remember when Christ united us to himself? I was thinking if there was a king, maybe the king of France or the king of England, and he didn't have an heir, right? And he decided to visit his city and ride around in his chariot. And he found this little orphan baby, maybe he's one or two, and he finds him in the slum or the dump pile. And before he brings him into his chariot, he takes a picture of the little boy sitting without hope, right? Sitting on the garbage dump, abandoned. And he brings him into his kingdom. And what is the first thing he does? Well, he does what Paul does right here. He brings him into his castle. And he's like, son, this is now all yours. And he shows him his kingdom, and he shows him his treasures, and he shows him all those things so that his son one day will understand the love of which his father had for him. But in the little boy's room, the king hangs the picture, right? The picture where he found the little boy when he was two, abandoned in the garbage dump. Not to shame the little boy, right? As the little boy will grow and get older and older and older, but to reassure the little boy that his love for him is not based on what he brought to the table, but his love for him is unconditional. It's unconditional and unfading. And so the Lord does the same with us, church. He doesn't want you to forget where he found you. He doesn't want you to forget that there was nothing lovable about you when he brought you into his kingdom and he gave you everything. So if Christ has loved us at our lowest, if he's loved us when we were in rebellion and we were failures, oh, how might that help us navigate the world now? To know that Christ's love is always upon you. To know that you can do nothing to cause him to abandon or leave you. Oh, the implications of that. What should our posture be in this world? How should we move towards those who are outside the walls of the church, right? How should we move towards those who hate the church? How should we move towards those who want to have nothing to do with Christ? What about our willingness to move towards those who are ethnically very different than we are? What does this say about the willingness to move towards those who are of different status and different financial status than we are? What does this say about the gratitude and the worship that should break forth from our church and overflow into our city? The Lord saw us at our worst and poured out all these riches upon us how do we interact with our enemies? Paul will end in verse 7 and say that it will take the coming ages, right, so that in the coming ages God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. That it will take all of eternity, church, for us to understand how deep 
and how wide and how rich these blessings that God has given us to us here presently. It will take an eternity for us to understand His great love. But now, in the present, may we not cover over or gloss over the ugliness of who we once were. Because in doing that, you make the depth of God's love, you make the riches of God's love shallow. So we rejoice in the mercy of God for his redeeming love. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for Ephesians chapter 2. And Lord, we know that it is a very familiar passage that we ask that you would take the truths that are here and God, that you would seal them upon our hearts. God, that they would be like ink that gets into our clothes and we can't get out, Father. These promises, these blessings that God has given us in Christ would, God, not just roll over our hard hearts, but would you make our hearts like a sponge and we would soak these things up. The truth of where you found us, the truth of the blessings that we have in Christ, the truths that we are now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And God, may these truths soak into our hearts and minds, and would you make our hands and our minds sticky so that the gospel continually is with us and present with us as we walk in life. And Lord, as we think about these things and as we ponder these great truths, I pray that it would change the way we move towards our enemies, that it would change the way we interact with one another in our sins and failures, Father, as we sin against one another and as we are sinned against, if we understand that Christ united himself to us when we were in rebellion and sin against him, that it would, it would change the way we forgive one another. Not just seven times, but seven times 70. And that we would forgive and love and show mercy. Lord, if we understand this deep love and if we share this deep love with others, God, you will add to your kingdom daily those who are being saved. So may the gospel be upon our lips. In Christ's name, amen.